Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The Square Ball Podcast. Hello there, and welcome to this very special season opening podcast. I'm Dan Moylan, and with me, Chief Executive of Leeds United, here's Angus Kinnear. Hello. Great to be here. Just the two of us today, but um, season kicks off this week. Are you ready? We're ready, yeah. Is Marcelo ready? He's ready. He's ready. His contract isn't ready, but (laughs) but he he is ready. No, I mean, I think um, we are very lucky to have a manager who is... uh, so exceptional at preparing a team for for um, for the start of the season, and uh, his pre seasons are absolutely meticulous. And uh, bar the contract, I think we're in great shape. Is that going to get signed ahead of the Man United game? It will do. It'll be signed this week and uh, and announced to uh, great excitement. <laughs> this is a hell of a hill to die on. Yes, no, it, it, we're we're in. A, I mean, to be honest, it's it's not even discussed. The discussions are all around preparation. It really is. It really is a formality. That, as I said, I think I've said before on your show, the you know we had a handshake probably six months ago and um it really is just uh, just the details but but uh, you know every day he's talking to victor to andrea and to myself but it's all about uh, all about the preparations can you give us a little insight into why it does take so long i know you don't need to get into the actual clauses and the things that are maybe holding it up but what is it that makes it take this long right up to the eve of the season fundamentally it's his lack of interest in it that that's the re- that's the reality. There are some minor points of, uh, that we discuss, but really, it's just getting his attention on it. He is so fixated on on the season and and the, and the preparations. So we have um, minor points that uh, that occasionally come up when we can get him to engage on it. But actually, it's it's much more around um, the lineups for the games, um, the transfer window, and and that's where his his priorities are. And we wouldn't have it any any other way. How does the club view preseason then from the inside? Because I think would you agree it's getting a, a little bit antsy. Yeah, I mean, I view it in, in two ways. So I view it as a supporter and I'd love to see the team battering everybody that we play and, and scoring goals and not conceding goals after six seconds. But actually, when you view it from the, from the inside, it's all about, about how ready we are um, when we step onto the pitch at 12.30 at Old Trafford. And um, what we know from Marcelo over the last three seasons is he's certainly the best manager I've worked with at getting a team ready to, to start a season. Um, and actually, some of the pre-seasons haven't been that glorious. And when you get to to, to work with them, you understand, uh, you know, players are at different points of their preparation cycle. So we've had players coming back from the Euros at different times. We've had players who've had COVID and, and haven't been able to train as as regularly. We've had the two groups, so switching players between the under-23s and, and, the, and the first team. But it's a very, very carefully planned and meticulous approach to making sure that all the players are at both top fitness and, and technical preparation. The fitness level's once again, are breaking records, even the records we, had, we we saw last season. So the team has has never been fitter if that were if that were possible, and that's a credit to to Benoit and Rob Price. So we think it's in, in it's in good shape. I think we'd have you know everybody likes the results to be better, but I don't, I really don't think and it's a cliche. But Marcelo doesn't care about the results; he cares about the progression from game to game. And I think um, across the weekend uh, with the uh, with the performance at Villarreal and also with the under twenty threes um, at Man City, which I, I don't think was publicised, it was behind closed doors, but um, Having seen seen that game, both teams are really uh, starting to peak at exactly the right time. There did seem to be a step up against Villarreal. You could start start to see things falling into place. And then just going back like, to the Blackburn game, that was our first proper first-team pre-season game, wasn't it? And they didn't look bad there either. Um, but it also felt to me like they didn't really get out of second or third gear for a lot of it. And that you know that there's they're working with team instructors. You know they're they're not going full out at at this stage. And they've got targets they have to hit from from a work rate. We've got lots of changes happening from the playing on the on the playing personnel side in terms of of the number of substitutes he plays. So uh, I think everybody should just look back at the last three seasons and and be confident that he's going to have us in the right place. And if he doesn't, then it's not through lack of work because the uh, the work behind the scenes has been once again phenomenal. Uh, can we talk contract extensions then? Because Marcelo's not quite yet put pen to paper hopefully that will be 
dealt with um, in the next few days. Although it's funny, I don't think there's a great deal of anxiety about him doing that. I think we all kind of accept that's just how he works now. But in terms of the players, we've seen a couple already through, thinking like Tyler Roberts, Stuart Dallas. Have we got others in the pipeline? We have. There should be, um, uh, I think, a couple more announced across the next the next few days. And it really reinforces the strategy that we've had uh, from the moment we got promoted, which was to retain the core of the talent that we have and put, get those players on, on long-term contracts and ensure they're committed to Leeds in the, in the long term. Because I think uh, if you see the way they performed, not only getting us promoted from the championship, but uh, the first season in the Premier League, people like Stuart Dallas are, are talents that you want to retain at the club. And that's backed up by the acquisition strategy that we had in the first year. And I know that some supporters have been perhaps um, perplexed or disappointed about a perceived lack of activity this year, but that was always the plan. We wanted to build a squad on the year that we got promoted that could last us two to three seasons, would get us off and running. We ended up spending, I think, more than any other promoted team spent to get to that position. And that enabled us this year to be in a position where we've got uh, strength in every single position. There were two specific positions we needed to address, which we did with the uh, with the signing of Junior at left back and, and Clausen at, um, at, uh, at goalkeeper. And uh, we've really delivered with, in terms of where we wanted to be from a transfer perspective. Can you give us an idea of where the wages are at versus the championship? You don't have to put a figure on it if you don't want, but multiples of, let's say. Uh, it's, it, it, is a, it is a multiple. Um, <laughs> it is, it is, it's an uncomfortable multiple. But I think we've done it in a, um, a considered um, and sustainable way. And I think most importantly, when you, I look through the wage bill, I look at the what the players are earning and I think it's it's competitive and they've deserved the increases that that, that they get. So we're we're not overspent and certainly this this summer, you know, the business we have done in the transfer window hasn't been restricted by finance. It's been restricted by being able to find the right quality of player who Marcelo thinks will will strengthen the squad. And that's really challenging because he really believes he really believes in the squad now. You know, look at positions we were talking about earlier at uh, the centre half where I think we've got we can perm two from any four centre halves and, and go into any game feeling very confident. And that's where Marcelo believes we are at the moment. He doesn't want to unstable um, or destabilise the squad by bringing in players who aren't significant improvement on what we've got at the moment. Financially wise, can you give us an insight into what this summer has has cost? Because I remember when we spoke last year, we were talking about like the signing of Rodrigo, for example. And I think it was it's Phil has said on one of the podcasts that we've done with him that we weren't actually on the hook for massive fees last year. There were only a few million changed hands. So... Uh, have these de- uh, deals been pushed into this summer? So that's had a bearing on where the outlay goes. Yes. Yeah, so we have we tried to delay payments from last summer because really we were still struggling under the impact of COVID, and we didn't know how long that was going to go. So that was a different one, to, a difficult one to, to, to balance. So there are now transfer payments, significant transfer payments from those players coming in, but that's that's absolutely expected and hasn't hasn't limited our capability to to bring in anybody else, but. Yeah, the reality is is that the transfers that we made last summer will be will be paid over 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 a number of years. So, so can you talk us through the transfer window to this point? I mean, we're speaking just to to date stamp this on the 9th of August on Monday. So there's what is the best part of a month left in the window just yet. So so where are we in terms of junior furpos coming? Uh, Clarkson, as you said, there's been a lot of talk around a midfield and and b winger. Um, that seems to have been the message that's been consistently coming out of the club across the summer. Is that going to get done as well? So in terms of where we are, I think um, we're delighted with uh, with the transfer of, of, of Junior. I think we've got a, a, um, a world-class left-back, hugely highly regarded um, before he signed for Barcelona. I don't think Barcelona worked out in the way that he'd, he'd have hoped, but uh, he's been a brilliant addition already in terms of behind the scenes. A fantastic professional, works really hard, totally buying into the ethos. So we're very pleased about that. You know, we, we had offered Gianni a very um, healthy extension, which he decided to uh, to turn down, but we parted on good terms. And um, I think everyone will hopefully agree that we've we've now strengthened that, strengthened in that position. In terms of Clausen, you know, he was actually a goalkeeper who um, who Victor presented to Marcelo and the board at the same time as um, or certainly to the board at the same time as Ilan, and he was rated as highly as Ilan by by Victor and the scouts. So we are um, we're very excited to have him. We think he's a he's a great long term prospect. And we made the decision partly for Kiko's benefit, but mainly for the club's benefit, that uh, we actually needed a young developing goalkeeper as backup to Ilan, rather than somebody who's sort of at the at the sunset of his career. So we've allowed uh, allowed Kiko to move on, and I think we've got a really exciting talent who um who also again if if the highlights of the Man City game are, are shown has the uh, capabilities in distribution that that Marcelo demands, and that's quite hard to find in in a goalkeeper. So we're excited about that. In terms of Kiko, he's done an interview in Spain where he's saying he's, he's sort of done in England. He won't be coming back. Is that likely to, be, likely to be the case from the club's perspective? 
Well, there's a, there's another year after after this one, so um, I think um, emotionally, Kiko is is probably uh, wants to be back in Spain, and and I wouldn't be surprised if he if he doesn't return, but he's still under contract at Leeds for another two years. I, I guess politically as well, with the difficulties surrounding his situation with the ban and all that, it's better for maybe for the club, for the fans, uh, and for him overall that he's back in Spain now and not here. I think it wasn't working for Kiko for 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 a number of reasons. Um, largely because he wasn't playing, he wasn't playing regularly, and he came to Leeds United to play regularly and be first choice. But obviously, Ilan's form has been absolutely superb and made him probably one of the the best young goalkeepers in Europe, if not if not the world. And so, I think the fair thing to do was to to give Kiko the opportunity to return home. In terms of the outgoings, uh, on top of Kiko, you mentioned Jani there. Pablo's gone. Berardi's gone. Wasim Boy's gone. After four years, his contract expired. It's quite a lot of um, bodies. Some of them more first team than others, uh, shall we say, have um, have departed. Do you think we're going to fulfil uh, Marcelo's desire to have two for every position? Because that seems to be one of the, the main starting points for, for the transfer policy. Yeah, that, that's where we'll get to. I think you know, that there have been an, a lot of outs, both on, from a loan perspective and some, and some permanent transfers as well. And that's about keeping the squad trim, um, ensuring that it's working from a financial perspective. You see this from a lot of clubs that get promoted as... Is, the team has to evolve quite quickly because you end up with players who were maybe an emerging talent for a championship side but are no longer an emerging talent for a Premier League side. You end up with players who maybe towards the end of the career who could still do a job at championship level but can't do it at Premier League level. So uh, Victor and his team have worked really hard to make some savings on on the wage bill and allow those players to, to hopefully be successful elsewhere. And we've taken those savings and reinvested them at, a, at under 23 level. And, you know, I think... Uh, Players like Amari and uh, and Lewis Bate are going to follow in the footsteps and sort of same trajectory as we've seen with Gildart and Drama and Greenwood and uh, and Somerville, who are now all pushing for first team starts. And that's very much a pillar of our strategy in the long term is to try and find the value of players who are eighteen or nineteen. So you don't end up. I think Newcastle have just agreed um, a twenty five million pound fee for for Joe Willock. Eddie Nketiah is now valued at 20 million. So we're just trying to be smart and identify the talent before before those prices go stratospheric. And we think we can create real, really good value for the, for, for the club in the long term that way. How do you perceive the market in terms of that? Because it feels like it's just bonkers that 20 million quid is, is the starting price for any young player now. It, that, and that's the challenge. And that's why we believe you can work in advance of that. And actually having the players working with Marcelo. I mean, Marcelo spends so much time with the under-23s. With the under you know, Mark Jackson does a great job, but Marcelo is working hand in hand with him. And we feel that they have a, a better chance of developing. You know, a player like Lewis Bate, I think could have chosen most clubs in the country to join, but wanted to work under, under Marcelo because he was ambitious and wanted to develop as a player. So I think if we can, if we can work at the level before they get to 20, you know, because buying... English players at 20 to 25 million who really still haven't properly delivered in the Premier League. You know, Enketia, Willett, both fantastic talents, but that's, you know, they are big bets to put on players to, to deliver immediately in the, in, in the Premier League. And, and, and we think the, the level just before that's probably the optimal time to purchase them. When these younger players join, and let's say Lewis Bates, one of the more recent examples, what's the sort of time frame then? Is there an idea of a time frame to get them towards first team contention? Because there was a lot of clamour for Joe Gellhart towards the back end of the season. We haven't quite seen him yet. Presumably this year, him and the cohort around him are going to be that bit closer. Is, is it a two-year process? Marcelo works on the, on the basis that you're ready when you're ready, but we see it as a two-year process. And I think Marcelo would, would agree with that, that effectively there is a year in the under-23s and then I think this season we'll be seeing Drama, Gellhart, Greenwood, Somerville, uh, on the bench regularly and making an impact in the first team. I think they're all players who can who can come on and make an impact. And I actually think probably in the next tier, you know, Lewis probably isn't too far behind them. I think he's probably a little bit more advanced than some of the other players we've got. So I, would, I wouldn't be surprised to see him potentially featuring as well. But um, you know, Marcelo run. You know, it's it's very much a, a meritocracy at the training ground. If you're good enough, you're old enough. So there's there's no prescribed plan. What's the market looking like this year? Because there have been some really big deals gone through the very top end of the market. Would you describe it as sluggish? It feels sluggish so far looking from the outside. Am it's, I imagining that? No, it, it's, it's gen, genuinely generally quiet. Um, I think it's driven by clubs in Europe struggling from, from COVID, clubs in the championships particularly strugg- struggling from COVID. So, so those types of play deals that might have gone through with championship teams paying you know six or seven million pounds, I think other than Fulham buying Harry Wilson, there haven't really been many championship big buys. I think some of the, the the deals which are happening at the top level will liquidate the market to a 
to create liquidity in the market to an extent. So you've seen that already with uh, with Jack Grealish, and that's you know cascaded down with uh, uh, with Ings and Wendia. And I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, Norwich and um, um, Southampton reinvesting that money. So I think there'll be some movement, but generally we, we expected it to slow to be slow. It is going to be slow. You know, teams are nursing losses in the tens of millions from COVID. And so, you know, no one's prepared to take big gambles on mediocre players. Is the club ready to, to pounce to take advantage of that situation then going into the final weeks of the season, of uh, the window, sorry? <laughs> yeah, we are ready. I think we proved it last year with with uh, with Rafinha, who wasn't a player that was um, was in the master plan, but was a, a last minute opportunity. But it will take a special opportunity to uh, to emerge. So at the moment, I don't think there's going to be a significant amount of business done between now and the end of the season. The fans should rest assured that we have a great team of scouts led by Victor who are continually monitoring the market. And it was it was Victor's insight and his relationship with Deco, who is uh, Rafinha's manager, who enabled us to to act first in that deal. And I think secure not only a great player for the club, but 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 fantastic value in the long term. So we're always ready. Uh, when it comes to Jack Grealish, you mentioned him there. Is that situation there? Is that a warning for the future for us regarding Calvin Phillips? Because he um, he had a stellar Euros. He was amazing, wasn't he? It's a warning for now. This summer, we've received a number of firm expressions of interests and um, some offers for players that would be perceived as our marquee talent. And we've received offers for or interest in players uh, at the level below that. But even the level below that is in the tens of millions for some of the players. None of them have been entertained. No discussions have taken place. No negotiations have taken place. The first objective for this season, the transfer window, was, was holding the team together. And I know you'll never get any credit you know, tick clubs never get any credit for that. But Ilan, Calvin, Patrick, those players are right at the core of Stuart Dallas, all the players right at the core of of of, of what we what we've done. They're not for sale. We've made the market very clear to the market that they're, they're not for sale. And um I think that's gonna be the core of our success next season is that we've resisted any any of those types of offers. But the reality is is that um, you know, ultimately every you know, and, and I think this was proven at Aston Villa, Aston Villa, you know, hugely ambitious club, really well run, really well backed. But ultimately, the, the the lure of Champions League and to play for a team which is going to going to win trophies turned the players' head. I know from um, Christian, the chief executive Aston Villa, they didn't have to they didn't have to sell him even at, even at that value, and they wanted to keep him. But when the player ultimately wants to go, then you have a problem. So our job, which I think um, uh, Marcelo and Victor and Andrea are fantastic at, is making sure all the players feel wanted and valued, and that um, that they can grow at Leeds United. Well, Calvin will be going into what two years left in the summer next year. So will that be something you'd look to do with two years left or is it not something you're looking to do? No, I mean, Calvin's, he's a long-term pillar for the club. So, so you know, we'll work with, uh, with Calvin and his representatives, you know, to, to make sure he's, um, he feels valued and motivated and wants to, be at, wants to be at Leeds United. But at the moment, he's got three years on his contract and it's, it's a healthy contract. So we don't have to rush into any of these things. But we will, we defend our, our interest in our players very vigorously in the marketplace. In terms of the midfield situation then, can you confirm that Conor Gallagher was a, a player that we were interested in, that that one fell by the wayside? He was, but but as part of a part of a long list, so it's, it was not, not critical to the plans, but he, I think he's a player that, uh, that our scouting team uh, thought had, had potential. Um, one of the challenges we have in um, securing, you know, and I think Conor was a, was a lone player, is that you, you have to be guaranteeing a lone player first in football at that level. And uh, you know, when we look at our loan players, it's going to be very difficult. When we look at our loan stretch, it's very difficult to look at at who in the team's going to be going to be shifted out of their position by by a loan player. And that's why you know I don't think you'll see uh, you'll see much loan activity this this season. Do you think um, the club's in a slightly difficult or slightly harder position when it comes to recruitment then because of that? Because it's difficult to guarantee game time. You're also asking players to buy into what you described as the ethos before. Does that create its own challenges when entering the market? Not for the the right quality of player, the right quality of player and the right mentality. I don't think we are we're not ashamed of the fact we have very high benchmarks for the players that we want to we want to bring in. They have to have the talent. They have to have the confidence that they're going to be able to force their way in the team. They can have to have the ambition and uh, discipline to be prepared to work with Marcelo and and the regime that that, that he he puts the, the the team through. And if they're not, then they're not the right players for Leeds United. So we're not apologetic about that. We want to create a high bar. The players to to join, and um, if we get any sense that the player isn't isn't up for the battle, then we know you know we know they're not right for us. Well, what can you say about Lewis O'Brien then? Um, plays for Huddersfield. Yep, yeah, that's the one. 
Um, Lewis is, uh, you know, again, his, his name's been on the scouting reports, but um, there's uh, no movement on that at the moment. Okay, and will we get a midfielder then, do you think, with the market looking like it is and maybe those parameters being set by the club and by Marcelo? Do you think it's going to be there's going to be somebody added to the roster between now and the the close of the window? Million dollar question, well, sixty four million dollar question, probably. If I was going to going to bet on it, I would uh, I would suggest that there'll be little movement between now and the end of the season. But I'd, if you'd have asked me at the same time last season, I'd have said there wouldn't have been any movement, and then we bought in Rafina. So it, you know, it, it can change, and the and the strategy is very much to be ready, but it has to be has to be an exceptional opportunity, and it has to be a a player that really moves the team forward. We've seen names like um, Nandez, Cagliari, and, and Cunha, who's at Hertha Berlin, being floated around. Any comments on those players and the, and the links? To the, you've got you were, a smile coming onto no, your face. I, was, I thought you were going to talk about how upset you were about Rodrigo de Paul suddenly being out of the. I did not <laughs> out, mention his out, name out, out of the picture. The reality is, is that the names that get linked with us in in the press all feature on the scouting reports because they're players of exceptional caliber. But um, to date, there has been nobody that we have um, pursued with any um, firm intent and meaningfully missed out on. So, what does the rest of the window look like? from a Leeds United perspective now then? Is it a case of sit and wait, see what happens in the market, see if things start to move, see if the right player becomes available? Where, where are you positioned at the minute? Yeah, I, I think sit and wait uh, is probably unfair on the on the guys. It's it's a very active process. They are speaking to clubs, they're speaking to agents, they're monitoring, monitoring, monitoring the marketplace, trying to identify whether an exceptional opportunity arises. But um, you know, to reassure everybody, you know, there is absolutely no panic at the, at the training ground. And, and I think... Um, Marcelo and Victor and Andrea are very, very comfortable, and and actually the team as well are very comfortable going into the into the first uh, the first games with the, with the team that we have and served us so well last season with the additions of uh, the the addition of uh, of Junior at left back. But we're, we're always on the lookout, and we're, I think we're very good at, at at taking the opportunities when they arise. And I think um, the trading strategy that generated such great value with uh, with Robin and and Diego and Rafinha and uh, and Rodrigo. We're not going to move away from that. So there's going to be there's going to be no no panic buying. And uh, and as I said, the strategy from what it was a year a year ago was to uh, was to get it right last summer. Uh, we think we did get it right last summer, and we think we've built a team which can last us at least two years in this league. Particularly when you overlay the fact that we've been able to resist um, any offers for, for for the marquee talent. But you do know that fans are going to hear that and are going to sigh and find that disappointing and it'll possibly fuel the slightly antsy feeling that's been around in close season. And it's not glamorous from a supporter perspective, but I guess you're dealing in more practical terms there. So what's your message to the people who who are going to find that disappointing, who think that the club is uh, is standing still or even going backwards? I understand the frustration. I understand the narrative that signing players is exciting and and, we get excited by it too. But I think think the... uh, Driven by Marcelo and uh, and Victor, there is a bigger picture here. You know, Marcelo doesn't want to buy players which uh, which destabilise the club. He doesn't want to buy players which which aren't going to fit in, which are going to damage the ethos. There's very much a team. There is a team spirit there that we don't want to damage. It, it served as it served us really really well. So I think people have to look beyond. There's an exciting name, and there's a you know great YouTube's highlights of of them. <laughs> And uh, wouldn't it be great to have them versus what does it mean for the team we have at the moment? Where would they fit in? Do they have the ethos? Do they have the work rate? Do they have the principles? Are they the right type of character? Uh, what does it mean from a salary perspective? But what I can categorically say is, and I've read it a few times, the transfer window today, to date and going forward hasn't been shaped or influenced by financial limitations. We have fantastic backing from Andrea, fantastic backing from the 49ers. The club's performing very well commercially and we're in a healthy position. But sometimes being selective and discerning is the right decision and, and filling the squad with people who aren't up to the level or aren't going aren't to fit with the current squad is, uh, is really counterproductive. Well, final question on transfers, then we'll ask, um, ask a couple of questions about the financial side. Is Marcelo hard to buy for? He's in, yeah, he's incredibly demanding. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question to ask Victor. He'd give, you, he'd give a much fuller answer. He's, uh, he is um, hugely demanding in terms of the filters he puts he puts through the players. You know, I've I know at other clubs that some managers will, you know, if they're offered a player, they will take them because they think it can only strengthen the squad. Marcelo is hugely discerning. It's all about the fit. How many people we have that in position in that position, their flexibility, their ethos, so, um, whether they can play with play with his principles. So far more players are turned down than uh, than, than accepted. But it's it's a really good process. I've been at other clubs and it doesn't work as well as this. And the relationship between uh, Marcelo and, and Victor is is really strong. 
Uh, Victor's very creative. He's got unrivaled knowledge. We've got a fantastic scouting team. Um, but we have a manager who's, who's really engaged and understands quite how vital recruitment is. But the great thing about Marcelo as well, he, you know, he also understands where value lies. Other managers in the marketplace you know, don't care about how much a, a player costs or what the club pays for them, but, but Marcelo does. He wants to do the right things by the clubs. He doesn't want money wasted on a rushed or low-value purchase. In um, Now, if it's something that we could maybe uh, buy and strengthen in, um, in, in January or, or, or later on, and where he's been particularly interested, he's been very interested again at, uh, at, at under-23 level. And all those players are, are vetted by him as well. And again, I think that's where in future years, some of the big signings and the big players we have are going to have going to been sort of, will have been seen as low level signings at the side at the time, but could have turned out into, big, into being big players. And in terms of the, the financial robustness of the club, we obviously dealt with COVID in the last uh, 12, 18 months. I saw Andrea quoted somewhere, I don't know if this is true, you can either confirm or deny that it's cost the club somewhere in the region of 60 million quid um, in lost revenue because of of lockdowns and no fans and so on it's tens of millions of pounds and it was unfortunate to be doing it in a season where where we got promoted when we could have capitalized on some of those commercial opportunities but uh but on the other hand it was it was uh it was probably fortunate that uh we were able to um rely on the tv revenue which wasn't uh diminished to the same level as things like ticketing which were decimated and, and that and that helped us build across the last year but it required increased commitment from both Andrea and Jed and Paraga, the 49ers. They had to step up again to back the club. So we're in a really, uh, a really healthy, healthy position. We've got ownership who are still very committed to the long term. And uh, the financial position is, uh, is robust, but we need to recognise that we invested incredibly heavily. And I, and I think, you know, perhaps from a fan perspective, we could have done half what we did last year and half what we did this year. And people would have been happy with it because it would have seemed like there was more activity but actually front-weighting it, which we did from a technical perspective, was more challenging actually from a financial perspective because it put more weight on, on, on last year. But we think actually that's been the best strategy because we now have a Diego Lorente who's played half a season in the Premier League, Robin Cock who's played half a season in the Premier League, Rafina who will only get better. And then you know we've made the signings of, of uh, Ilan and Jack permanent as well. I think if you look at it across the first, across two seasons, then I think um, the, the business that we've done has been... Uh, has shown that there's no shortage of financial firepower and, and no shortage of, of, of ability in identifying players who are uh, who, who can move the club forward. I know what the answer to this is going to be um, because it's going to be a political answer, but I'm, I'm curious to find out about the relationship with the 49ers. And as minority shareholders, they're still happy to pony up for something they don't control. I mean, the relationship between the 49ers and Andrea, it's, it's very much a partnership. I think um, that minority shareholder position can be different in a football club if particularly if there's tension between between the ownership groups, but um, there's very much a shared vision. Um, the 49ers are very excited by the longer-term potential and the relationship that we hoped we'd have when they came on board is exactly the one that we, we do have, where they are, they are, um, they're committed. Parag and, and Jed are both flying over this month for, uh, for games here. They want to be here at the start of the season. Uh, it's been frustrating because they haven't been able to travel, but um, I think it's a, it's a really uh, healthy mix um, Andrea's Acer group and, and and the broader 49ers ventures. And Peter Lowey on the board. There's one that interests me because there's a man who's bought in through 49ers Enterprises, so he's part of, of that vehicle. A Leeds fan and, and a man with a lot of money. It's a great mix. <laughs> uh, uh, Peter is a, is a massive fan. He talked about um, his love for Leeds United coming when uh, he couldn't actually watch Match of the Day, but it got broadcast as a radio as a radio feed in Australia, and he listened to it using a coat hanger on his radio to be able to to be able to hear hear Leeds United. So he's a huge fan. He's actually uh, he's actually flying over from the states for the Manchester United game, but he also is a tremendous asset for the board as well. He's been immensely successful in 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 his career and, and with the, with the Westfield Group. Obviously, very um, appropriate skills for for stadium development and, and ancillary development around the ground, and he'll play a big part in that. But from my perspective, the best thing about him, he's, he's absolutely leads through and through. And that's exactly the type of person we need on the board. Was it that skill set that brought him onto the board as well as the tremendous wealth? Yeah. I mean, the, the 49ers were, um, their investment group has, has, they've deliberately gone out to approach and engage people who have a, who have a, have a broad skill set. So I think you know, at board level now with the expertise of the ACER group run by Andrea and the 49ers investment group, we're in a really strong position. And I think Peter will play a big role in the club going forward. And presumably fans returning is going to be a welcome boon for everybody. I think we're all giddy with excitement, looking forward to getting back in against the, against Everton and the lucky ones who've, who've made it to Old Trafford because we are 
uh, recording on the day of the uh, the ticketing announcements. And uh, good luck trying to explain this one. Should we have a chat about the tickets? Sure. We were in a situation where demand hugely outstrips supply. So can you talk us through the, the home and away ticketing policies, what the general sense of things is at the club? Because basically, you're always going to piss somebody off. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's frustrating for all of us. I think when I uh, joined the club four years ago, we didn't sell, we didn't open the, um, the upper tier of the stand because we didn't have enough supporters to put in it and it was done as a cost saving. And now we're in a position where we could sell the, the ground out three times over. I mean, the, the, the increase in interest has been absolutely uh, phenomenal. And um, I know this creates some tension between the supporters who, who feel they've been... Um, uh, more loyal or attended more regularly um, through some of the more challenging years versus some of the newer supporters who are becoming either re-engaged in the club or supporting us for the first time. And so for the club, we're trying to create a balance between rewarding the loyalty of the, of the supporters who've, who've stuck through us because they've, they've seen some challenging times and, and the support has been, has been phenomenal. But also we have a responsibility if we're going to keep Leeds operating at the highest level to engage new supporters and to, and, and to grow the fan base and to diversify the fan base and, and, and to become more international. And uh, I think from my perspective, what we want to try and do is make that a, a harmonious process and, uh, and make the uh, supporters that have been around for longer feel that, um, that embracing new supporters and, and, and making Leeds United bigger and better is in all our interests. And we've tried to come up with a ticketing policy which uh, is founded on, on rewarding loyalty. So away tickets is a good example where two-thirds of the tickets will go to um, supporters who have... Uh, high um, away attendance records um, but then there'll be a small amount which will be available for um, for season ticket holders an even smaller amount will be available for members because we believe at the club that being a Leeds United supporter you should have a chance even if only very rarely to have the privilege and joy of supporting Leeds United away from home so rather than a small group of fans being able to go to every game we've tried to create a mix where the fans who've traditionally gone to every game still still can fans who've been to half the games historically still can but there is some tickets for for new supporters who um who want to buy into the magic of supporting Leeds United, and all I'd ask as we go through this this process that we try and maintain the uh, the unity that I think have made the club great over the last three years because it's it's just disappointing to see supporters fighting over tickets. It's a it's a frustrating situation. The ultimate solution is in a redeveloped stadium and. We're working on that, but it's it's not going to solve it for the next couple of years. Mm. So the redeveloped stadium uh, will be three times the size of the current stadium. So that's what seventy five, eight, <laughs> eighty thousand. We're going for at that rate. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, it will. Uh, it's going to need to be. It's going to need to be substantially bigger. I mean, we we saw it in shirt sales. The the away kit and home kit have both had had record uh, record weeks since since launch. But we're going to be in a position where we're going to be selling uh, three hundred thousand shirts when we were selling twenty thousand four years ago. So so the growth has been phenomenal. It's one of the things which makes Leeds special, which is going to give us a competitive advantage in in the long run in the in the Premier League. I think, you know, we're we're on track to have the uh, seventh highest commercial revenues. There's still a very big gap between us and and the the so called big six. But we we intend to close that and and with a fan base we we have we have the capability to do that. But it is um it is going to um I think there'll be some tension as we as we never as we navigate through it, and we've seen it on home tickets already. Because you know, a game like Everton, a game we could have sold it out three times over. Old Trafford, we have three thousand tickets. We think we could have self sold fifty thousand. So there <laughs> there are going to be people who are going to be dis- disappointed, and we just need to hope that they believe we're trying to do it in as in as fair and e- equitable way as uh, as possible. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, there's not a lot you can do about the away tickets, given that they're capped at 3,000, is it? Apart from find, I guess, the, the fairest way to do it. And fingers crossed. I mean, I mean, to the club's credit, I think it's good that you engaged the supporters advisory board and listened to them and heard them out and made tweaks to it. So credit to the club for that. I mean, we'll get on to the engagement side of things in just a minute or two. With, with the home tickets, do you think you can justify a £75 membership? Because uh, your chances of getting tickets are pretty slim, and that's really what people want when it comes to memberships. Yeah, I mean, our research in membership shows... shows um, so the £75 is the, is a more expensive membership product. There are ones that, that, are, that are lower than that. And, you know, people do have a value in the affiliation. They have a valuation, they have a value in LUTV. They find a value in the, in the pack that they've uh, received historically. I mean... What price do you put on a musical bottle opener? But clearly, it comes down to it comes down to ticketing, and we're going to have to continue to to evaluate what the demand is going to be for tickets. You know, when we had a membership scheme at Arsenal, the majority of members didn't apply for tickets. You know, membership was what was enough. I think that would be different at Leeds. So, part of the process that we're going through, and I think you know, the supporters advisory board did a did a fantastic job on away tickets. We had a straw man proposal that we thought was right, and uh, they very clearly and constructively fed back about how we needed to evolve it and we, we got to the right the right place on it. I think across this year on membership and as we see what home ticketing demand looks like, we'll have to evolve the proposition. It's not off the table that we won't have uh, introduced an element of loyalty into home tickets so that people who attend more regularly have have a slightly earlier earlier window. The higher level of membership does give you access to the um, to the ticket exchange which we launched for the first time this year. We're really hoping that fans use the ticket exchange because it's important for, for two reasons. One is it, it gives members a chance to, to come to matches that season ticket holders can't. But the second is it means that Ellen Road's always full. And we know that you know at stadiums you can have 5 to 10% no-shows and we don't want that. We want every seat full on the basis that we've got. We know so many people are going to want tickets. We're also upgrading our ticketing software and um, uh, next season, we'll have uh, much better balloting functionality. So it might be that we can move away from this mad scramble for, for tickets on the day that they're launched and the sort of fastest finger ser- first solution to a balloted approach. Um, so I think this year is going to be far from perfect, but we'll we'll learn some lessons. And, and our um, our intention is twofold. One is to ensure that we keep tickets affordable, uh, as affordable as we can. And we've, uh, we've frozen chil- children's tickets again this season. So it's, uh, it's five and 10 pounds to watch Leeds United versus Man United. It's the most attractive child's ticketing policy in, in the Premier League. Season tickets are frozen again for a 10th year in a row. There's small increases on match-by-match on match tickets, but they're going to be behind inflation and they're going to be based on largely driven towards some of the, some of the bigger games. So we think that's very fair, but we know we've got some work to do in, in making sure that we can distribute the tickets in as, as fair a way as possible. And we'll keep listening to supporters and we'll keep improving. I mean, speaking just for myself, I look at the, um, the release of the prices today and you've released like there's an A-plus category and there's going to be an A and a B. Uh, depending on the fixtures. Yeah, my, my criticism, if there was to be one, would be about the price of the membership because you're asking a lot of money for a small chance of a, of a ticket. It feels like a lot of money. And that would be the criticism I would think that you could level at it. Um, that it seems to be trying to strip money out of fans for, for what is an already an expensive business. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we, we'll see what the the, uh, the take-up on, on membership is and, and then how many people apply for, for every game. I think there's there's a perception that you know members are only just in, interested in, in, in the tickets. It is a bit broader than that. But I think it will be it will be up for review. And if we if we've ended up putting out a product which you know doesn't have any value because people can't get the tickets, then it'll obviously need to evolve and change. What will the split be roughly? Do you know on the A plus A B categories? Have you got a rough idea at this stage? It will be it will be done. We'll decide it across the season. So it's going to depend on a number of things. It'll depend on the timing of games. It'll depend on whether they're on potentially whether they're on TV. It'll depend on how well the team are performing. So if we if we're performing appallingly, then the games will change. But I think it's um, you're effectively looking at um, it's being split evenly over the over the nineteen games six six and six. Appreciate that's not nineteen, but, <laughs> no. but, uh, but, 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 but roughly roughly like that. But it, it may change, and and uh, and as I said, it'll depend on a number of factors. In terms of COVID protocols, is there anything that we need to be aware of coming back for the first the first, first home match? Is anything in place there? Because I'm I've completely lost track, to be honest, of what needs to happen in what part of the country and. Well, you know, for each sport or each event. Yeah. Well, at the moment, we're hoping for, from a supporter's perspective, that it's a return to, to normal. So I was at, uh, at Fortress Kenilworth Road on, uh, on Saturday, and uh, the experience for Luton Town fans was exactly the same as it was pre, pre-COVID. No checks, no surveys, uh, no masks. So I think from a supporter's perspective, it, it shouldn't, 
it shouldn't impact them too significantly. The only thing that we're currently working through, and this is the big challenge that Premier League teams are facing, is that uh, unlike the, the EFL, the Premier League are demanding that players still socially distance. And that brings some challenges because last season when we had the players socially distancing, it meant that the, uh, the away team could, they changed in the, uh, in the players' lounge, the drug testing room was in the Norman Hunter. So we used the whole of the West Stand, the referees changed in, in the president's suite. So the whole of the West Stand was used as a facility to keep the players apart. We're now in a position where the players still have to socially distance and that's because the risk of infection is still there and ultimately the Premier League, and it's the right thing from the Premier League, they want to protect the integrity of, of the match fixtures. Uh, but we're now in a situation where we have to socially distance the players in a full stadium. That's going to be more challenging. So supporters will see that we'll be building a um, an away dressing room complex uh, in the car park behind the West Stand. Be some <laughs> it, sound, it sounds glamorous. It's, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> It's uh, it's going to um, it's going to involve some different movements of supporters. There are going to be some seat kills that we have to to put in place for protecting the gap around the the benches, and there'll be some screens put in place as well. There'll be some screens around some of the media facilities. Um, so there are going to be um, some changes to the stadiums, and all the supporters who are going to be impacted by that will be hearing it across the the, the next few days. We apologise that it's so late, but these these uh, rules are evolving day by day our vision has always been that every fan gets to sit in their seat with a, an experience which isn't impacted but it looks like there will be several hundred supporters in different areas who, whose match day experience might change because there have been people who've said the front of the west stand you know the seats that came out for the tv interviews are they going back in or not they're going back in right um but there is some uh, space that's need to be made behind the benches and so there'll be some there'll be some moves there and there will also, uh, from for separate reasons, but there'll also be some uh, rail seating placed into the uh, into the north stand as a trial. Yeah, how much is uh, of that is going in on the rail seating? Yeah, yeah, it's probably going to be uh, somewhere between one and two thousand to start with as a trial, and um, and if it works out, then we'll we'll be looking to roll it out more uh, across across more of the areas where only in the areas where persistent standing is a, is an issue. <laughs> so all of the away games, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and, and north and south. So that is just a trial at this stage. Do you know which part of the of the the cop they're going in? Is it front, back, middle, sides? Uh, it's it, they do, it's done from the back. That's as specific as I know. So that, that they haven't there's the exact locations, but it'll be done from the back, and then it'll move, it'll move forward if it's successful. Okay, and what's what's prompted that it is just the the persistent standing and the fact that you're getting it in the ear from the safety authorities. Yeah, it's, yeah, we're not getting in the ear from them. We're having constructive dialogue with them. <laughs> um, but uh, Ellen Road has been highlighted as one of the stadia with the highest risk of what's called a progressive crowd collapse, which is uh, people falling over the seats. Which we've seen sometimes, yeah, actually. Exactly. Yeah. I, think the, I think the supporters call it, refer to it as limbs. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's to avoid that issue. Um, ultimately, it's, it's not safe standing, and you're still not allowed to have safe standing or advertise it as safe standing, but it means that if a supporter were to persistently stand and uh, they were pushed forward, they'd be uh, fall into the rail rather than into the person before them. So it's just about okay. making it safer. I mean, our long-term objective is to... Uh, is to allow supporters to enjoy the game the way they want to. So if they want to stand, we're fully supportive of standing. And we think ultimately, and certainly in the new stadium, we would have a, a stadium which is um, a combination of seated and, and standing so that supporters could enjoy the game they want in the way they want to. In terms of the development around the ground, the racing seat dugouts, uh, they always prompt questions. Are they going to go in for the new season? They're not in for, for we've held off on those for, for COVID reasons and, right. and the work that needs to be done around the dugout, but it's, it's on the development master plan. The big, the big piece of work that that has been done is the pitch has been totally uh, a, a full reconstruction. So it's 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 two million pounds. It's why the first game of, of the season is is away from home. So we had an extra a week to to get it right, and we'll end up with a uh, with a world class playing surface. And uh, and at the same time, we've done the same at the training ground, so that the pitch that the players train on will be the same, exactly the same as the, as the pitch they'll play on week in week out. Sounds like a Marcelo request to me, does that? It's exactly, Marcelo request. <laughs> to, to, to be fair to the groundsman, Kyle, our groundsman, uh, has done probably the best job in English football in terms of maintaining the Leeds pitch to the standard that it has been maintained. I think I've I said before, but he uh, he came with a uh, to me with a letter saying that the uh, from um, uh, an independent pitch consultant saying that the pitch was uh, five years out of date and needed to be reconstructed immediately. And I looked at the letter and it was dated 2009. The last pitch was 20 years overdue, so the ground staff did a fantastic job. But ultimately, we can't have anything. And we would have changed it last season, but for the COVID window, wasn't wasn't short enough to, sorry, it was too short to do that. So uh, 
this year we're going to give you know we're going to have the players playing on the surface that they deserve to play on yeah they look really nice the hybrid those hybrid pitches with the stitching very fancy I've, I've fantastic. got very granular on it very granular indeed in terms of other stuff at the training ground I presume Marcelo's been cracking the whip you've mentioned it in uh, in interviews in passing a couple of times yes there's been some again um, he's you know he takes the uh, the training ground is on a on a continued journey of self-improvement I think we've had uh, another 250 lorries of soil removed to ensure we maximise every single space so there are now no undulations uh, there's new access roads to be honest we, you know, we're lucky to have a manager who's who's so engaged in in the um, the broader interests of the club and he's worked fantastically and tirelessly with uh, with Mark Broadley our, our facilities director to continue making a, you know evolving Thorpe Arch into a into a truly a Premier League training ground and with eight years left on the lease is there a, a plan a medium term plan there around that yeah, we, we think, um, we, you know, we have identified and explored other options for Thorpe Arch. I think ultimately we're going to need, we're going to need more space if you want to deliver the training environment that we think will be best in class. And there's two ways to do that. One is to, is to move the academy and have the academy and first team facilities uh, separate. Or the other one is to, is to find a bigger site or expand Thorpe Arch and, and effectively create more of a divide. The challenge at the moment is that the, um, the academy and the first team have to completely coexist. And that's not best in class. I think best in class is you have both sites together, but they are they are separated. And so, as you have the parents of um, of twenty eleven year olds turning up at five o'clock, they're not mixing with the with the first team who are who are finishing a training session. And under Marcelo's uh, watch, the training grounds become a twenty four seven operation. So it used to it used to be dead by the afternoons. It's now it's now busy all day every day. And do you think that's the likeliest outcome is you will look at a new site and if the right site comes up, then you'll look to move? Both are equally valid at the moment. At the moment, It could be, it could be an expansion or it could, it could be a new site. You know, we had the vision of moving the academy back into the, into the city centre at, uh, at the Matthew Murray site. But ultimately, we decided that there was a, a more pressing need for um, the community facilities to go there. So the community sports hub that the uh, foundation team will be running, which is going to be a fantastic home for our for our foundation, and will be, I think, the best community sports facility in the country. That's going to be opening in, I think, eighteen months or two years in Holbeck, in one of the most deserving parts of our of our city. Um, it's going to be a fantastic facility. It's it's in the shadow of of Allen Road. And we decided that in that case, we needed to put community first and, and therefore be looking for other sites. So that's the Matthew Murray site. That's where the, the community hub will go. And it allows the club to expand Ellen Road as well. So where are we on that timeline in terms of the expansion? Because um, we've spoken over the last 12 months about maybe by the time the third year is secured in the Premier League, you can push the button on it. So where are we now? So we're, st- we're still moving forward on it. We have uh, had good conversations with, with Leeds City Council. So they that was also part of the decision to move the uh, community sports hub because that actually impacted the, the footprint that we'd need to go to 60,000. So we protected a footprint to go to 55, but to go, six, to go to 60, you need more. So we've, the community sports hub now is, not in that, um, is now not in that space, which allows us to move the West Stand back. The West Stand would be the first stand that we develop because it's the oldest and, and has the most um, upside potential. So those discussions are in place with the council. Those, the, the deal on the land will be announced, um, announced very shortly. Plans are continuing to move forward. But really the focus for the club from a day-to-day perspective is, is just uh, maintaining our Premier League status and, and, and flourishing in the Premier League. I think after another year, we can really start to accelerate the plans because every single day we're proving the need that, um, that a new stadium is or a significant stadium redevelopment is, is the key which takes us to the next level. And if you look at the revenues that the bigger clubs are generating for the stadium, I think you know, Spurs are, are generating £5 million a game. That's £100 million across the course of the season. We're just over 20. So before you get into sponsorship, there's really a significant gap in, in ticketing revenue and there's very few clubs in the country that could or could justify a 60,000-seat stadium, but Leeds United is one of them and I know that's part of Andrea's vision and part of the 49ers' vision. It's interesting that it's, it's evolved from 55 up towards 60. Do you think that's what you're going to go for now? I think so. Uh, but based on the on, we had to make some projections around what we thought demand would be like in the Premier League and they were too pessimistic. <laughs> by 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 quite a factor. So you know, what, what we, when we've seen the demand for tickets, when we've seen the demand for shirts, we've seen how how quickly the fan base is is growing. I think the upper end of that is is more likely. But ultimately, it will it will depend on on, on the construction costs and and the value they get from it. And it might be that it's done in in a number of phases as well. So, what does a new West Stand at Ellen Road look like in terms of split between corporate general admission? You know, price wise, would we expect to see a price rise to 
accommodate the expenditure. The strategy, and I've seen this done very successfully at, uh, at Arsenal and West Ham, is that it's the corporate seats that, that drive the revenue going forward. And, and in bo- at both Arsenal and at West Ham, there was no increase in GA seats as part of a, a stadium development or, or, or stadium move. So I think um, whilst there's always some reluctance from supporters to, to welcome more premium tickets into the ground, it's actually the, the fact which enables GA tickets to, to be pinned and, and, and not have to increase. So I think from a mixed perspective, there would be more premium seats, but there would also be significantly more GA seats and it would allow those GA seats to be... Uh, to be sold at the same prices or similar prices to they are now, because that's the concern is that the you know if you're cynical about the redevelopment, you go well, it's all going to be corporate. I'll never get in there anyway. No, it's it's when you look at the the demand profile, there is a demand for more more corporate seats, but there's as big a demand for more GA seats, and ultimately you need to deliver against both. So it will be you know be significant increases in both. So would the plan at this stage be West Stand first, then maybe moving around to the cop, the north side? Yeah, the, the, would it involve the corners as well? The idea would be for, for atmosphere purposes to to ensure that it's a bowl rather than four separate stands. The phasing is is open to uh, open to debate, but you can either do the west and north at the same time, or you can do them separately. Key is that you protect the attendance for the season that you're that you're doing it. So the way that works is you uh, you build over the existing stand, so the supporters can can still sit in their seats, and then the next season they move upstairs, and then you build a tier the tier below it. So you, ideally you don't lose significant capacity during the construction process. West and North can be done together. They can be done sequentially. And then it's about joining it up to, probably joining it up to the East Stand. And uh, it's more of a, a redevelopment of the East Stand than a knocking it down and starting again. And then the South Stand's the most challenging because you've got Ellen Road behind it. So you don't have the footprint behind to expand. So that would probably, that, that would limit the expansion on that side. Do you think you get the shipping container boxes out of the South Stand eventually when when corporate is uh, you're able to sell corporate in the New West, for example? Yeah, that, I mean that's the the South Stand would need to be taken down and started again. Right, but just a smaller. Um, but if it just doesn't, it just doesn't have the depth. It wouldn't have right. the depth of the other. Of the Do you other think three. you could expand a little bit of capacity though? Maybe going back over the road a little bit, cantilevering yes. it. Or, yeah, no, okay. de- definitely opt. I mean, no one would design a stand now with shipping containers for, <laughs> forming that. For anybody who doesn't know that, yeah, it's Bill Fotherby's idea. Uh, he put shipping containers in as uh, as exec boxes, didn't he? Yeah, so it's it's not it's not best in class. There's, there's still a lot you can do with that stand, and yes, you can you can go back you can go back over the road. So there's, we're basically looking at everything, eventually everything but east, and then the east will be tarted up to sort of match the rest of it. The key is is that it's done in a way which is um, which doesn't dent performance on the pitch and how we develop on the pitch because we don't want to get a, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, and that's why one of the reasons we haven't communicated extensively extensively on new stadium because we know lots of other clubs will. Uh, it's very easy to circulate um, you know, some stunning virtual reality graphics and fly-throughs, which we have, but we haven't gone out there because we want to go out with, with, a, with a story. That Can we, I see it? We, well, I won't <laughs> tell anybody. We want to go out with a story that we... Uh, we um, um, yeah, I'll show you. Uh, we, we want to go out with a story that we, that, that, that we know we can deliver on with a, with a short time frame. And it's one of the things we've tried to do at the club is rather than talk about things we might do, we want to talk about things we're actually going to do. So I think supporters should know that there is a there is a vision and there's a plan and it's a key pillar of taking Leeds United to, to where we think they should be. So if we, if we stay up then this year, would you push the button on it for, yeah, when, when would construction start is what I'm asking? If we stay up this year, then construction wouldn't start next year, but the process would. And that the process is planning full designs. And actually the commitment you do, the commitment you spend, the quantum of the commitment, you financial commitment you need before you start construction is tens of millions of pounds. So that's the first gate that you need to go through as we are up again and therefore there's tens of millions of pounds to take us to the to the point where you can put a shovel in the ground. Okay, so a couple of years down the line when you're going to start maybe breaking ground. Then, In terms of the kits, you mentioned them before. When, when are you going to put some proper yellow on the kits for a legacy fan like me who's never going to buy a shirt anyway? Well, you've answered the question. <laughs> um, again, the, the kits are um, another great, great topic of debate and we are trying to maintain the balance between doing things which uh, push the kit design forward and appeal to new audiences but also um, retain our loyal fans and give them something that they can purchase as, as well. To date, I think we've done a reasonable job in it. The kit sales have, have been absolutely phenomenal. You've still got the third kit to come, which I don't think will appeal to the tradition traditionalist in you. Is this lilac, um, Angus? But, Blink um, once if yes, <laughs> twice if no. But um, uh, I think generally we're walking a walking a good sort of balance between um, things which are innovative and have some design features which interest people and 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 want to broaden the appeal of the of the club. But at the same time, I think even the most uh, staunch loyalist and traditionalist wouldn't get too upset about a slight change in the uh, shade of yellow oh i don't know <laughs> I, I don't like that yellow but actually i've grown to like the kit it's uh it's not too bad and at the end of the day i mean i'm who am i to argue with the sales and i guess it's driven by that at the end of the day 
I mean, we don't, we're not totally driven by sales. We don't want to forget that, that, you know, the core of the club, but ultimately I think sales and doing the right thing by the fans are, are pretty well linked. So if you do something which actually completely disrespects the heritage and, you know, you move to a kit where Leeds United wouldn't play in white at home, not only is that the wrong thing to do from a, from a club perspective, but it'd be the wrong thing to do from a sales perspective. The response that you get from supporters is, is evidenced by, by what's bought, but ultimately we're not driven just by sales. We're driven by giving something people that people, um, Love and want to see the team in, and, and actually the team want to play in as well. Yellow Adidas stripes. That's all I'm asking. Just yellow Adidas <laughs> on, on that blue kit. Put yellow ones on it, and I'll and I'll go buy it right now. You can have. You can have how much is it? Seventy five quid for a shirt these days. No, it's, I don't think it's that expensive. It's, it's bloody expensive. And early September is it for the the third? We're looking around early yes. September. Yeah, and it's not going to please the traditionalists. Let's just go back to that, just so people can get furious about something. I think the uh, the third kit's the one where we can always be the most experimental. Okay, um, so not yellow then. Another year for old gold or yellow. Just just one, all I'm asking is just one year. That's all I want. I think it's around the corner, I think. And speaking of legacy fans, we can't close this show out without talking about the uh, the commercial link-up with socios because that it provoked a response. Again, I'm throwing a blanket over it. It's the legacy fans who are kind of going, what the hell is that? It's not met with universal welcoming arms across the football spectrum. Other clubs have done it. Can you talk us through that from the club's perspective then? I completely understand the uh, some of the supporters' reservations no, it's not going to be for, for everyone. But at the same time, we want to ensure that the club are positioned well commercially and at the forefront of, of new developments in the industry and in society more generally that might be beneficial to the club. We think that uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency and supporter tokens are going to play a significant role in, in football clubs going forward. We are far from um, forging the way on this one. We're the 42nd club to sign an agreement with Socius. I think they've got... Uh, at least a couple of million supporters who've bought them. And I think there's 30,000 tokens already, sorry, 30 million tokens in, in, in circulation. So it's a fairly, although it's early, it's still quite a, a well-established pr- product. And I think the key thing for supporters to, to realise is, I mean, firstly, this is financially beneficial to the club. And this, isn't, this is not talking about supporter money. This is talking about money that Socio have invested in Leeds United as part of the partnership. And it's a, it's a meaningful sum and it's a, it will make a difference to Leeds United. But also, as we start to reveal more details about the, the product, I think a lot of the concerns are going to be diluted. The first one is, I think the Supporters Trust came out and said it was, uh, you know, they didn't like it because it was about monetizing fan engagement, which struck me as a little odd because professional football clubs are fundamentally about monetizing fan engagement, whether that's selling tickets or broadcast rights or, you know, we want supporters to engage in the brand and often there's a financial transaction. So that's not, that's not unusual. What would be unusual if this was about uh, monetizing fan influence? And it's categorically not about monetizing fan influence. I think any of the supporters who've worked with me on the supporters advisory board or in the media or in any of the supporters groups know that I am, you know, I've got firm beliefs and principles about how a supporters club can be run. I've been to part of, uh, of a supporters trust. I think they're you know, critical to, to how a club operates. Um, the same with our supporters groups, the same with the supporters advisory board. And for me, influence in our club will always come through, through dialogue and discussion and our principle has always been that if anybody, whether they are a single fan or they're an organised group of fans, if they want to engage in the club in a in a constructive way and they believe in the vision to make this club uh, great again, then I'll sit down with them. My door's always open to those conversations. So Socius has nothing to do with supporter influence. Socius is about some low-level fan engagement. But that's, um, that's not how they sell it. Activities. Well, if you, if you look at how they've sold the proposition, it's changed significantly. So originally when they talked about it, they talked about influence. But actually, if you look at the votes that we've agreed with that supporters will be able to vote on, like voting on what might appear on the, um, the players' playlist before a game. So you can, you can, you can choose what's going to be. I think they listen to a lot of Buble, I hear from Luke Ayling. But if you, want, if you want something other than Buble on the players, the players will select five or six tracks and then supporters will be able to get to vote on what might go in there. So it's just a, it's just a way of engaging, of engaging with the team will be naming some of the pitches at the training grounds. So these are pitches which currently have the catchy titles of pitch three and pitch four, and they might be able to be the Peter Lorimer pitch or the Norman Hunter pitch. Again, they're not about, for me, influencing the direction of the club or the policy of the club. They're just about allowing supporters to engage in, in, in a way. So for me, it's not, really about, it's not really about influence. And the second thing is, is about the financial aspect of it. So the first thing is, is that all season ticket holders and all members are going to receive a token for free. So they can have the ability to engage in a way which is at no cost to themselves. And the second thing is that the price of the tokens is £2. So we're not talking about large level cryptocurrency speculation here. We're talking about a small level of, level of investment for ultimately what should be a fun and enjoyable product. But clearly, it's not for everybody. And if you're not interested in it, then don't purchase it. Yeah, I, th- um, I think the thing is, though, is the way that it's sold is 
it doesn't close the door to large scale crypto investment and trying to buy influence if you if you like you know that that people could choose to partake in it like that thinking that the club needs me to buy 10,000 of these or something like that you know to hear my voice or whatever certainly that won't be the message that's coming from our from our channels and knowing the socios team i don't think that's that's how they see the product of having evolved anymore i mean like everything that everybody who partners with the club they're all open to to misuse we have partners in the alcohol category in the gambling category we have home appliance partners you know don't go and buy a massive TV on on credit if you can't afford it. You know the, we have a responsibility to our support for our supporters to to ensure that they don't they don't get involved in things which are which are detrimental. But I think this is this is low level. It's not positioned as a cryptocurrency investment. We will never position position it. That is a it's a fan token with some engagement opportunities, which hopefully I think supporters will find fun and engaging. It helps the club learn about blockchain and cryptocurrencies other, other clubs are learning as I think they're going to become more involved in terms of the way that clubs operate in the future and um, I can understand some of the uh, the reticence towards it but it's not a big pillar of what Leeds United doing it's just another another opportunity for Leeds United to uh, to move forward financially and hopefully from a fan engagement perspective but but for me I think it was a bit of a, a bit of a storm in, in a teacup and I'd be very very surprised if in six months time any supporters have got any concerns about about socius at all because I think they'll have seen how our plans roll out and they'll know it hopefully they'll know from what we've done to date that at the heart of the club they've got two ownership groups and a, and a chief executive and a director of football who who engage with our fans face to face and certainly from the feedback I get in the street on a daily basis the fans <laughs> are happy with that way of engagement. But you do understand that we're a, a fragile and, dam- and a damaged fan base based on you know the last 15, 16 years prior, well, prior to promotion. We were called sick pots by Ken Bates and Sean Harvey went on the record and said supporters support. So there is, there's a fragility around the idea of, of engagement. I think because the socialist thing was, was hung on the hook of, of engagement, it feels like we're only just sort of tiptoeing back through those waters at this stage. And, you know, I presume you would accept that mistakes were made around the engagement over the badge. So the, I mean, but you know, to your credit as well, you've engaged over the over the tickets um, with the supporters advisory board. So it, there, there are two sides to it. But obviously, when when it comes to stuff like this, it's an emotive topic. People still have memories of those things. So I think when it's hung on uh, hung on that hook, the engagement hook, that's where that sort of reticence and, and no, I, I fully understand it. And we know, you know, we learned it. We learned it from the badge very very uh, acutely. And I still think today, you know, I think we because of the the sort of sins of previous ownerships you know we don't have the level of trust amongst the fan base that we would have had if if they hadn't had 16 years of of failure and disaster and that's completely that's completely understandable hopefully what we're trying to establish over time is that our our intent behind what we're trying to do even with the badge is right we're trying to push Leeds United forward we're trying to we're very very ambitious in objectives for the club you know we don't want to be a mid-table side I think there is one club in this country and I hate the phrase top six, but there's one club in this country that can be that can enter the top six, and that's Leeds, that's Leeds United, and that's our long term vision. And to do that, the club is going to have to evolve from how it operated when it was a when it was a League One club, and that might be in the terms of how tickets are sold, how our commercial partners are engaged. We won't get all of these things these these things right, but hopefully, as time goes on, all I'd ask is that is that supporters believe that we're doing these things with the right intent and. I was absolutely comfortable with a lot of the criticism of the socialist deal and it's fair and it'll be listened to and we'll make sure our plans evolve to continue to hear it and, and to d- deliver a, a relationship with that partner which works for our supporters. Where I get slightly disappointed is when it turns into an attack on either mine or the ownership's integrity and the intent behind why we're trying to do these things or it um, raises doubts as to the um, financial commitment of our own not my financial commitment but the financial commitment of our ownership group which has been undoubted as well because i think that's a little bit unfair i think we're doing these things for the for the right reasons the cryptocurrency market is going to be significant in football it, clubs that operate it successfully will have a competitive advantage in the long term and i think just supporters need to trust us to try and pursue that path and that opportunity in a way which is still in line with Leeds united's values and they've got my personal commitment that we will and finally, then you mentioned top six. Is that what we're shooting for this season, or what is what is the aim? I mean, I guess there is a is there a different aim between a uh, an accounting perspective and a football perspective? Yeah. So our direct our finance director, uh, she budgets everything to finish seventeenth, as you know that's the most prudent way to do things. You know, and 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 there's so much uh, revenue uh, linked into uh, how you, your the merit payments where you finish from a positional perspective and how many times you're on TV. 
Um, so performance really drives our, the, the, the finances of the club as well as it does in terms of ticketing and, um, and retail. From our perspective, and this is going to sound like a lack of ambition, the vision is to establish ourselves in the Premier League and be a team which is not looking over our shoulder at the start of every season saying, how do we avoid getting relegated? Because speaking to other owners of clubs, that is what absolutely paralyzes development in a club over the long term. If the first question you have at the start of every season is, are we going to go down? Because do you build a new stadium if you think you're going to go down? You don't. Do you stretch yourself to sign a marquee player if you think you're going to go down? You don't. Do you invest in the academy if you think you're going to go down? You don't. So we need to be in that position. And, and being really candid, there are very few teams who are truly in that position. So if you take the top six out, there's normally only two or three teams who are so this season it's probably Everton and Aston Villa and maybe West Ham who are going into it saying, okay, now we're looking, we're looking up rather than we're looking down. But everyone else is looking nervously over their shoulder. We need to be the team which is looking, which is looking up. And I think the trajectory that Marcelo and Andrea have taken us on, we are now a team which is looking up rather than down. However, you have a 50% chance of getting relegated in your first season, a 50% chance of getting relegated in your second season. Sheffield United proved that with a fantastic first season and a disastrous second season. I don't think we are any. We have that type of risk at all. But ultimately, establishing ourselves in the Premier League is the primary objective. However, I think fans and I, and I think fans should remember that. So when we have some moments this season, we were talking earlier just when I came in. You know, if you look at the, the fixture list in December, and you know, if we lose at Brentford, then you've got you playing the top five in in succession. There are going to be some challenging periods in this season, in the same way that we had challenging periods last season. But we have absolute faith in the team, absolute faith in Marcelo. And for me, success in this season will be completing the platform and the foundations that we built last year to say Leeds United are back and we're looking up. You'd accept a top half finish, wouldn't you, really, again? I mean, that would be a exactly, great... exactly what I was saying. <laughs> it would be, for me, that would be a great outcome because, especially as we get to see it, because we missed it all last season. Top half would be, would be, would be phenomenal. I think, you know, we want to stay true to the, uh, we want to stay true to the, to the DNA. I mean, I mean, I was so disappointing the supporters missed it, but, you know, striding forward with 10 men in the last seconds at, at Manchester City it was it was just phenomenal because it just showed everything that the club was about you know who else would have a midfielder steaming through 30 seconds left when you're when you're at one all so we want to stay true to the to the values hopefully we'll 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 do that and I think that means that you know Ellen Road and for the fans who are lucky enough to attend the way it's going to be incredibly entertaining and we were lucky enough to be there last season and it, and it was and we can't wait for crowds to be back so I think there's lots to look forward to, but I think the supporters should just, um, we just need to be, although we're hungry for success, we also just need to be patient and we need to give the team, the team haven't played in front of supporters. And whilst Ellen Road, I think can be, you know, probably is the most intimidating place to play in the Premier League when it's full, you know, we also need to be supportive and not let the nerves and... It can uh, be hard as well. It can be, it can be hard. Yeah. And, and we saw it in the, uh, we saw it in the, uh, in, in the championship in the season where we just, we just stuttered at, at the end. So, I know when uh, when the Leeds supporter are united behind the team and it really truly is um you know an unconditional love then there's nothing limiting the team at all and I just think this season we should just uh, bear in mind how far the team have come and just make sure the support's there in the moments which which are going to be more challenging. Angus thank you. Pleasure. Really enjoyed it. The Square Ball Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.